Netcasts you love. From people you trust. This is Twit. Bandwidth for Security Now is provided by AOL Music and Spinner.com, where you can get free MP3s, exclusive interviews, and more. This is Security Now with Steve Gibson, episode 218 for October 15th, 2009, Q&A number 77. Security Now is brought to you by Go to My PC. Unchain yourself from your office PC and access it from anywhere with Go to My PC. For your free 30-day trial, visit gotomypc.com slash security now. It's time for Security Now, the show that covers all things security-oriented, like your privacy, browsers, hackers, bad guys. Steve Gibson's the man in the know, the head at the Gibson Research Corporation, GRC.com, creator of SpinRight, discoverer of spyware, and our esteemed host for the last four years plus. Hey, Steve. Hey, Leo. Great to be with you again, as always. Sorry I wasn't here last week. I hear it was a scary show. Well, we did. We we frightened a lot of people. Not well, you know. Not I think unduly. Uh, we had twice the normal amount of feedback from people who wanted basically clarification of different types about specifics of what we discussed last week. So this today's Q and A, we have a few. Uh, you know, random things, but largely I did because we got like literally twice as many submissions for, of, of questions. I wanted to spend some more time to to clarify some of the finer points of this. And, you know, unfortunately, you missed last week's episode. So this will give us a chance to catch you up on this because it's pretty significant. And I think we're going to be touching on this aspect of what, what I called last week the broken browser model um, somewhat, you know, here and there in the future, because it is a it's a fundamental aspect of the way we're using the internet today, which you know, as we'll see, is not very secure. So we've got a bunch of security news. Get this: the largest Microsoft Second Tuesday of the month update ever. There there've never been more things fixed at once, and the good news is. We've talked about several of these things that have been fixed um, previously waiting for Microsoft to catch up. And this is their catch up Tuesday. So lots of things caught up. Uh, some other random security news, a really sort of interesting, uh, fun spin right story. And then uh, some great questions that will help to clarify some of what we discussed last week. It's kind of uh, kind of ironic that uh, we all think that things are getting better and better and, you know, you should need fewer and fewer patches and yet there's more and more patches. Seems well, like remember, the wrong direction. Well, things are getting more complicated. And as we've often said, complexity is the enemy of security yeah. because, you know, the more complex something is, you know, I think, you know, it seems natural that things are getting more complicated and techies, enjoy complexity i think for its own sake so you just as things get more complicated um there's more opportunity for mistakes and you know the the security always is the weakest link in the chain well the more links you have in the chain the longer the chain is the more opportunity there is for someone to miss a weak link and then of course the bad guys spend all their time looking for the weak links 
we just hope the chain holds together. So, you know, it's it it really it is in many ways security is a a much tougher battle than than the way people use software, which is oh, it's working fine. That's that's all I need is it for it to be working. Well, no, but security it needs to be working perfectly, and I mean with a capital P. Yeah, yeah. Do you think Windows Seven, which is due out in a week, will change everything? No, it's yeah. new. It's bad. New is bad. <laughs> I love you're so, <laughs> you're so conservative. It's new. <laughs> I don't like it. Look at the evidence. XP yeah, was right. they, they would remember Ballmer was jumping around saying it was going to be the most secure Windows that had ever been made, and it turned out it was the biggest disaster they'd ever had. <laughs> true, true. It's new. True, true. It's new. It's bad. Well, Period. We've, we've got questions. You've got answers. Uh, we've got security news. Do you want me to let's let me do the commercial and uh, get that out of the way, and then we can get right down to it. How about that? Sounds great. All right. Today we are talking about our friends at Citrix, and I love talking about Citrix because. Um, they're not only the old friends, but they're, they make a great product they have for years. They've been, you know, a, a important tool in my toolkit. They do, you know, it started, as I mentioned, I've mentioned many times before, it started as a remote access, uh, system and they've added, you know, uh, uh, go to assist, which is remote access for it pros. They've added go to meeting, which is, uh, you know, remote access for folks who uh, want to hold meetings online. But the, the granddaddy of them all, the one that is pure remote access, is the fantastic Go to My PC. And if you haven't used this, you really are missing out on what the state of the art in remote access is. Go to My PC, uh, state of the art for so many reasons. One, because it's so easy to use. Uh, in fact, if you go right now to go to mypc.com slash security now, before I'm done talking, you'll have it installed. And, and by the way, for free, because I'm going to give you a 30-day free trial. So go to go to mypc.com slash security now. Uh, once it's on your system, now you don't have to do anything else to prepare. You just walk, walk away from the computer. And I know a lot of you who work late, long hours, <laughs> will be welcoming that opportunity to get up from the desk and walk out the door without having to think about, do I need something? Do I have to sync up? Do I have to burn a disk? Do I have to you know copy some files? No, just leave it. Because when you need it, it's there. Whether it's at home, at an airport, at a hotel, even at a sketch internet cafe where you don't know what the security system is, you don't have to install any software. You just go to go to mypc.com. That's, by the way, secret sauce number one. They use this uh, NAT traversal system that means no router configuration necessary. You don't have to get permission from an internet cafe to use it because you're just going to a website. Go to mypc.com. It downloads this little stub, just takes a few seconds. And now you've got complete 128-bit SSL from that computer at the Sketch Internet Cafe to your office computer. It's just like a VPN. Uh, it's basically an SSL VPN. But you can do anything you could do at work at that remote computer. You, you see your, your computer screen. You can run any program. You can send and receive email. You can access any network resource. Uh, you can even drag and drop files from one computer to the other. It's, just a, a, it's a beautiful, elegant sweet tool that's fast, easy to use, and kind of almost paradoxically completely secure. Go right now to G-O-T-O-M-Y-P-C. Go to mypc.com slash security now. Sign up for 30 days free. You'll see what I mean. We thank them so much for their support. We say a tip of the hat to Citrix for making it easy and good. Go to mypc.com slash security now. 
So what's the latest? Do you want to do the security news? Yeah, well, we, we got some. Um, as I said at the top of the show, the big news of the week is the biggest ever mega monthly update from Microsoft. Um, we talked about the uh, SMB V2 vulnerability a couple of weeks ago, which was a concern for the newer Windows clients, which support version 2 of SMB. Um, there was the, the possibility of remote code execution. That was fixed. They fixed multiple vulnerabilities, uh, critical vulnerabilities in the Windows Media Runtime, also in me- Windows Media Player, i.e. got four critical vulnerabilities fixed. Um, oh, we're just warming up here. The ActiveX kill bits was updated. Remember that that's the thing oh, yeah. which prevents ActiveX controls from being in, instantiated or invoked by Internet Explorer. So those were updated so that fewer things on the system could be misused. They finally fixed this ATL, the Active Template Library problem. That was a that was a, a, a bug in their library, which meant that all programmers around who were using the ATL system to create ActiveX controls were inadvertently creating vulnerable ActiveX controls. So that's been fixed so that anyone who now compiles using the Active Template Library, which is one of the tools Microsoft provides for creating ActiveX controls, will no longer be creating inherently exploitable and commonly exploitable, that is, with, with, with a, a, an exploit that everyone knows about, uh, ActiveX control. So that was finally fixed. Multiple vulnerabilities were fixed in the .NET system, which is becoming an increasingly popular programming model for using Windows. Multiple GDI plus vulnerabilities, which is the enhanced graphics device interface library used by pretty much everything. Uh, We talked a few weeks ago about the problem with um, Microsoft's web browser, IIS, and its FTP server warning any of our listeners who did have a publicly exposed FTP service running on IIS to, to, you know, think twice about that. That got fixed. There was a vulnerability in their indexing service that they fixed, uh, Windows kernel elevation service that they fixed, and finally the biggie of the, of the month, what we've been waiting for, which we've talked about several times now, is they had that the problem with null null bytes embedded in certificates, which allowed spoofing of SSL certificates. Um, it turns out that another little bit of news is that this was shown by our friend Moxie Marlinspike, who um, who brought to the world's attention the fact that you could create a certificate with the name www.paypal.com, then a null character, that is a zero, and other web domain like um, mymachine.insecuresite.com. You could, because the certificate was really being issued to insecuresite.com, a, you, could, you could get a... Uh, a certificate authority to run through the automated process to give you such a certificate. The problem was that 
if you use that certificate, the web browsers would only parse that would only parse the name up to the null character because the uh, so-called null terminated strings is the modern way of storing string um, strings of characters. So we, we talked about this, you know, months ago, where um, the original Pascal means for storing a string was to, for the first byte to be the number of characters in the string, that is the length of the string, followed by those characters. The problem was that allocating a byte for that meant that strings could never be longer than 255 characters, which is the maximum value you could store in a byte. So that approach was abandoned in favor of so-called null terminated strings. But the problem with that is it's one of the sources of major vulnerabilities in you know in buffer overruns and so forth that are assuming they're like scanning a string waiting for the null but if a bad guy can put in their own code that doesn't contain any nulls then and and like store that where a string is expected that's the source of many of these problems so moxie publicized a a similar vulnerability well microsoft finally fixed it with with the update two days ago on the second Tuesday of the month, which was two days prior to this podcast on Thursday. And until then, IE and the web-based version of Safari and Chrome, Google's Chrome browser, all which used and were dependent upon this crypto API, which finally got fixed. This has taken a long time. This this vulnerability has been out there and known for a long time. Firefox fixed it promptly themselves. So even Firefox on Windows had not been vulnerable. Finally, now nothing is. But in an interesting related little tidbit, PayPal suspended Moxie Marlin Spike's donation account. Uh, apparently out of some fit of pique with him over having created this certificate. What happened was that somebody else created one, which was then made freely available on the Internet, posted on various sites and in various security blogs as, as a further demonstration. He, Moxie, in his presentation, showed this as a proof of concept, but being responsible did not use it to create a certificate that was then made public. Somebody else did. And PayPal suspended Moxie's account because he had on his page um, a donation to support the use of his SSL sniff utility. And PayPal said, well, we don't encourage or, you know, it's against, it's a breach of our terms of service to collect money to support a program being used to deliberately promote insecurity. Hmm. So that was a little disappointing. Uh, I don't know how long that's going to going to stay the case, but that's something I just picked up on a couple days ago. Um, it is time for people to check the currency of their Adobe um, Acrobat reader and Acrobat uh, program. There are targeted attacks now again that are in the that are occurring for people um, uh, who open a PDF file using Acrobat version nine point one point three. Apparently, nine point two 
was supposed to be made available. Um, and um, I did check. I'm still using eight, so I never was under the problem with this vulnerability. But anyone using nine, um, supposedly Adobe did their monthly update also on the second Tuesday of the month. In, in I'm sorry, their quarterly update. In Adobe's case, it's a quarterly update, not monthly, although as we've already seen, they've, they've not been holding to that at all because they've had so many problems that they've had to be addressing. Um, they had but, 29 fixes yesterday. Yes. <laughs> well, that just shows you if you hold on to them long enough, you can really build up a <laughs> quite a backlog. Which is why it's just nuts. This this idea Jeez. of doing doing this every three months is like, what are you guys thinking? You know, and they, you know, they said in their original policy that, well, we want to let people know when we're going to be doing updates. It's like, okay, well, as we know, several have been so bad, they haven't been able to wait. And then they have like this huge batch that they fix at one time. And the problem is when, when we say targeted attacks, what that means is that, that there's a known problem and, and rather than just in the wild problems, specific people are are being fed malicious PDFs, you know, like like executives in corporations or in banking firms are being targeted with known email addresses and letters written specifically to induce them sort of based on knowing who they are to open this PDF. And when that happens, malware gets installed. So I mean, it, it's it's interesting that you know here's Adobe being reluctant and and slow to fix these problems, yet you know they're a vector of really significant security threat. Wow. So, and everybody has it. Yes, exactly. On it's, Windows it's a, anyway. You don't need it, it on the Mac, but on Windows, it's, it's a, exactly. It's a very very common um, you know application in order to be able to read PDFs. Um. Comcast has started doing something interesting. They've opened a pilot test in Denver. And I'm of two minds about this. They call it Comcast Constant Guard. And what they're doing is doing 24-7 traffic analysis monitoring. To protect of, you. It's to uh, protect yeah. you. Of their, of their subscribers. And, for your own good. And then doing a browser intercept, which is, I think, the controversial oh, thing. Dear. Now, they say that they've been doing traffic monitoring and notifying their their customers, their, their, their ISP subscribers, by phone for the last two years. Well, I think that's, that's preferable because – and apparently they report that their subscribers – to, to Comcast love being notified that they've got malware on their computer. So you get a call, a phone call from a Comcast person saying, you know, hi, this is your cable provider. Uh, we wanted to let you know that your computer is evidencing a traffic pattern on the Internet that gives us strong suspicion, strong reason to believe that it's infected with something. So, you know, go to the following URL and you can get instructions for how for free how to remove what it is that we believe you've been infected with. What they're now doing is because they, they say because of the extreme popularity of this, you know, they're of course it's expensive for them to have their people phoning their subscribers. They're going to automate this with a browser intercept, which 
it is a mixed blessing. It means that when you are surfing somewhere, some server at Adobe that is, I'm sorry, not at Adobe, at Comcast, some server at Comcast, because they're your ISP, they're in your traffic stream. You know, your traffic is transiting across their equipment. They will give you a presumably return a redirect or just give your browser content different than what it's expecting, which is an intercept page notifying you that you've got malware on your computer. They believe that that you know the 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 traffic analysis that their systems have generated lead them to believe there's some bad stuff on your computer. Click the following link to go and take care of it. And apparently, you can push past that if you choose not to. That is, it's not a you can't do anything oh. on the internet until you fix it. Okay, but it is intercepting your use. Of that's, the internet. What, that's what worries me because, you know, Comcast was before using that software from Canada to uh, watch for BitTorrent. And I, th- I, I worry that this is a backdoor way to kind of we're protecting you, but also we'd like to see what else you're doing. <laughs> Online, well, you know? yes. And it's, it's funny because this takes us it's, it's a perfect segue into the next thing I wanted to mention, which is that an Australian ISP, IINet, is has has been taken to court by a consortium of movie companies who have sued this ISP for not disconnecting subscribers based on the movie company's say-so. There is a, there's a so-called safe harbor provision in Australia that protects ISPs as long as they take, quote, reasonable, unquote, actions to prevent copyright infringement. Well, I mean, this is one of the problems with laws that are written broadly. Um, you know, what is reasonable? Now, now we have to go to court to have an interpretation of what that means. The Australian ISP, IINet, is saying, look, uh, an allegation of infringement is different from a proof of infringement. They're saying to the movie companies, you take these infringing subscribers of ours to court prove that they are infringing your copyrights and we'd be delighted to disconnect them we'll jump up and down to disconnect them but we're not going to disconnect anybody based on your allegation that they're infringing just because you say so so it's an interesting question uh which and i'll be interested to see how the court decides this because again this is you know we've we've already covered in the past this general move by in, in our in the U.S. case the MPAA that is no, that is set as a policy they are no longer going to go directly after the end user infringers instead they're going to work with ISPs to somehow discipline these guys and so here we have a case where this is not working out so well where the ISP is saying eh you know uh, we need a reason we, we we need good cause to to disconnect users and in our opinion you know the the movie industry's statement that the following users are have copyright protected content on and are distributing it is insufficient grounds we, you know if you prove it that's fine not if you just claim it interesting you know i mean we yeah. have we have the same uh you know kind of a takedown rule in the states of course but generally what happens is uh 
they write a letter to the ISP saying, you know, this guy's stealing from us. And the ISP then warns the person. I've seen this happen time and time again, saying, stop, stop stealing. Stop doing it. And usually they give them a few strikes. Yes. So it's interesting. Yes. I watch this with interest. Yeah, be interesting to see how it goes. Um, I have two little bits of errata. One is that a couple users wrote in to say they cringe every time they hear me see say Mac OS X. And I have to you say, notice I don't correct you on that. I noticed that, and you always say OS ten. And I yeah. thought, well, okay, I get finally I'm going to get a clue here. OS ten period. So that I I've you know I've why I don't correct you. Um, this is actually uh, something newspapers and other journalistic uh, endeavors always have to deal with is do you go with the commercial typography? Remember CNET was C, a bar, N-E-T, capitalized, a lowercase and stuff. And yeah, how do you pronounce that? Well, and it's not even, you know, in in a newspaper, it's not an issue of pronunciation. It's an issue of, here's a really good one. Do you put the exclamation mark in Yahoo? Uh, Right. Many, many journalists believe that's commercial speech and you just put Yahoo without an exclamation mark. But Yahoo would say, no, no, that's our trademark is Yahoo exclamation mark. We want the full thing. And so I think I don't look, it reads Mac OS X. It's doing Apple's it's carrying water for Apple to say, no, no, that's 10. You read it any way you want. <laughs> it's not, you know, you're, we're not here to advertise for Apple. So well, it's, it's an X on the page. You can say X. And, it's and, not and incorrect. I- so, so someone said, well, clearly when it was OS 9, it was OS 9. Now, if they went to XI, I'm not going to go OS XI every time. True. I would probably say I would get a clue and say, okay, OS 11. But yeah, anyway, so. You know, a lot anyway. of people say OS X. I don't have any problem with you doing that or I would have said something. Well, thank you, Leo. I'm going to be going. You know, I'm going to try to correct myself and say OS 10 okay. from now on, even though somehow my, I mean, even now knowing it, I just look at it and I want to say OS X. So it's an X. I, I got to shake the habit. Um, I discovered something interesting the other day. Um, some stuff wasn't working that I w- expected to have working. Um, and I discovered that installing Microsoft Security Essentials replaced my hosts.ini file. <gasps> interesting. Yes. And not surprising, but I thought I would just bring that to the attention of our listeners. We've talked we've talked often about the hosts how how the hosts file can be used to to redirect um DNS lookup and you know there are people that maintain hosts files that that are that you you can download uh it's a very handy way of just ever keeping your computer from asking for a specific domain name you 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 you're able to to assign it to 127.0.0.1 or 0000, whatever you want, an, an IP that doesn't go anywhere, essentially. And and your computer, by convention, this has been the case ever since Unix first got put on the Internet, the host's file is checked for domain names prior to any DNS action, uh, uh, lookups being made. So... I had a bunch of things. In this case, some of them were privacy and security related, but also I was just sort of using it as a poor man's DNS server to redirect a bunch of strange domains that I use um, internally, and that broke. And I was scratching my head for a long time until I remembered, wait a minute, didn't didn't I put this in the hosts file? And I looked there, 
and it had been mine had been renamed to dot back and the date of the new one was the date I installed Microsoft Security Essentials and Microsoft Security Essentials had a note I thought was very nice. They put a note in there to, to say that that's where this host file came from. So I, I wasn't at all a mystery to me. It told me, but I thought, okay, well, you know, I, it would have been a little nicer if they made a pop-up or something that said, hey, we noticed you've customized your host's file um, part of installing Security Essentials, because this could be maliciously changed rather than deliberately changed by you. And, and and this, of course, is why they do it. Malware has been known to make changes to hosts' files. And so Microsoft well, that's is true. That's true. putting it back to something. That, but basically, they nulled it out. They, they, they removed – there were no – fancy changes they made they just put it back to the original one which is which does nothing it's there but it's it's got no entries in it essentially just a bunch of commented lines did they make it read only uh good question i guess that'd be easy for malware to change mine was so yeah i mean that wouldn't slow down malware very much yeah so yeah so anyway i got a i got a kick out of that i thought i'd just bring it up to our uh, listeners' attention for anybody else who inst- who is using a host file That's and installed yeah. Microsoft Security Essentials, yeah. and I got a uh, a fun spin right note. The subject line this was sent through our sales uh, email uh, from an Andy Kinsey uh, in Haddington, Scotland, UK, and he said spin right saves Salon, and he had Salon all in capitals, and I'm thinking, well, I don't think he means the magazine or the website or anything. But, you know, it caused me to read it. He said, hi, Steve. I want to thank you so much for Spinrite and what it did over last night. Friday was my day off. I have a job and I freelance technical and web design. Anyway, I was called at 9 a.m., apparently on his day off, by a client whose computer wouldn't boot. The machine was the till, as he put it, was the till and had three years of accounts on it. For some reason, my web design client hadn't externalized backups nor looked after the machine at all. So I think what he's saying is that his responsibility was not this salon's, you know, front counter cash register till, but they called him because, you know, he was a technical guy that that did their web design. So he said, when I got there, the hard drive had no signs of life. I took it out and attempted to manually power it via my cables and USB devices. No win. I was at a loss and began the long, laborious process of indexing the backups and attempting some kind of recovery as there was no access to the hard drive. So I guess they had non-recent backups or something. He said, through USB in my other machine, it was visible, but no access was given, nor any indication of its size. It was only some hours later I had the brainwave, as he put it, Spinrite could help. So I went to your site, bought the software, put it on my USB, and stuck it in the machine with its dead hard drive. I ran Spinrite. Some 18 hours later, Spinrite was complete. I removed my USB and waited in anticipation. Two minutes later, I booted the machine with bated breath. It worked. I was in. I immediately took a copy of all the data and backups to my external USB drive. 
I rebooted the machine again, and it was bricked. I knew it would be. I've never, I've never seen a hard drive in such state. Wow. So basically, Spinrite brought it back literally for its last gasp. It, you know, he and he did the right thing because this drive was in such bad shape, as he said. He immediately pulled the data off of it and got everything. He said, anyway, we managed to find another system and reinstall everything, including all the data. It took another day to get it all sorted. So two days of work. Whilst this was going on, the manager was calling around trying to get another system. The cheapest was 5,000 pounds per year. Money this salon can't afford. They border on extinction every day, never mind having to find 5K. Thanks solely to spending $89 for Spinrite, the salon was able to use what it had and is still in business. Thank you, Steve. You saved the salon. Wow. Now maybe they'll do better backups. That was cool. And I think I, they probably got a lesson. They yes. probably learned a lesson in the Spinrite is probably that, you know, that is that little window of opportunity between <laughs> success and failure. And it probably has taught a lot of people a lot of lessons. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I think you're right. It, it's like just if I could only have my drive back one last just time, once. I promise I will be good from now on. It's the answer to that prayer. Please, just one more time. It's, it, it's, a, it's a little bit of a time machine. Just, you know, it's just turn the clock back one day. I just oh. need yesterday again. Leo said and- I should back up. <laughs> All right. Let's, uh, we got questions for you. Yes, and, we do. Uh, we can get right to them, starting with Andrew Brannigan. In Carteret, New Jersey, uh, this is, has to do with what we were talking about earlier, Adobe's uh, Patch Tuesday. He says it's a Patch Tuesday headache. Good Wednesday morning, Steve. We record the show on Wednesday, so that's apt. I uh, just wanted to point out that even though Adobe did release their quarterly update, they're not making it easy to distribute. They're dragging their feet on releasing an MSI. You know, those are the Windows installer packages for version 9.2. When you go to their site... And enter your information to get a distributable copy of the software. They send you a link, which contains version 9. 9.0. Just thought you might want to incorporate this into the security news today. Looking forward to the show. Nice one. Maybe they'll fix that by the time we get this on the air. We can hope so. But I did want to give a heads up to our users Jeez. that, of course, the there there's the sort of the the slipstream automatic update approach that you get when you use your reader or acrobat and tell it to look for updates that's just the update that adobe normally provides there is however for people who want a so-called redistributable update where you get the actual file itself in as you said an, an msi format which you can then yourself individually run on different machines uh, it's probably just an oversight maybe you know I, I mentioned that it was wednesday morning because as of our recording of this 24 hours from the time Adobe released this, it's still not fixed. So I just wanted to point out to our listeners to make sure if you're using that, that you're getting the 9.2 fix from Adobe and not this older, you know, retro version that you definitely don't want. Question two and question three in one big ball. Uh, Starting with Patrick McCauley in Guelph near Toronto, Canada. He has a man in the middle question for you, Steve. Uh, I'm not really a techie, but I've been listening to security now for a couple of years now. I've learned a lot about keeping myself safe online. Last week's show with Alex subbing for Leo was a great one, but a bit scary as you revealed how someone can get between me and an apparently secure login screen to capture IDs, passwords, etc. Were you talking about uh, 
click fraud? Nope. Well, I will. I, That's well, another one. We'll get through this in a second. Yeah. yeah. One thing that was not clear to me was whether this loophole only occurs if the man in the middle has somehow gotten access to my LAN or if it's a danger on any internet connection. Right now, I'm on your site from my home computer, connected to my router by cable. I don't think there's any way someone can get access to this LAN, so am I safe? And further, if I use my notebook to connect to my router wirelessly using WPA encryption, am I safe there? And Ted Linden, Woodstock, Illinois, has a similar broken SSL question. I want to make sure I understood you correctly, Steve. The man-in-the-middle attack you described requires the bad guy to be on your local area network. If I'm using SSL to do a bank transaction, I'm connected to my private network using WPA2 and one of your really long passwords. It's my understanding that this is still secure because the man-in-the-middle cannot get through the router. Both my wired and wireless computers should not be vulnerable to this attack on my home network. Am I right? Also, if I'm on a public network, but the first thing I do is set up a connection with, like, Hotspot VPN, is this also a secure way to do an SSL transaction? Love Twit. Love security now. My car radio is constantly tuned to one of Leo's podcasts. Also a spin right on her. Thank you, Ted. So okay. uh, this I want to hear because I didn't hear everything you talked about on the episode. I'm Obviously, I'm going to have to go back and listen to it. It was a good one. Yeah. Um, so... Here's the, I, I've been thinking about it in the intervening week, and I think I have a, a simpler way of describing the problem. Um, the, the example I gave was a specific instance using ARP spoofing, which we've talked about in the past, yeah. to, in, a, in any local area network scenario, to to allow someone to intercept traffic to users of the network, um, thus creating the man in the middle. The, 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 the focus of the podcast, though, which we titled the badly broken browser model, what it noticed that if you were logging on from a non-secure page, that you could not trust the form that you were using for to accept username and password. Because if the page was non-secured, then a man in the middle could have intercepted the page and, for example, taken the S off the HTTPS on the form submit button so that the, the submission would not be secure which would allow that man in the middle to to intercept and acquire the 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 login data or whatever it was you were submitting to to the the site that you were connecting to so the idea being that the re, the the broken thing about the browser model is that that there's nothing that that protects the the content of the pages we're receiving from a remote server from being edited on the fly unless it's secure, unless the the content that's delivered is secure. But we've talked about how pages you submit, pages that you, you use to provide information don't really have to be secure. It's the, it's your clicking of the button. It's the it's the submission of the information that needs to be secure. However, 
as we looked at last week, that's not the case if you have somebody clever in the middle. And what Moxie um, brought up and made very clear during his Black Hat presentation was that somebody in the middle could could deliberately edit pages which you were receiving from a secure site to quietly drop the security. And, and so the example I gave was in a public, for example, in a public Wi-Fi uh, scenario in a hotspot where you were inherently using an open LAN. I mean, it was a, it, it's a LAN, an Ethernet LAN, which is very sniffable and where ARP spoofing can be used to insert a man in the middle. And, and in last week, we described the statistics of the number of secure logons, PayPal logons, credit card numbers, uh, very common logons that, that he acquired doing this during a 24-hour sniffing period. So it's, it's extremely effective. So now to answer both of these listeners' questions and many similar questions that people submitted um any man in the middle that is a, a a person at any point between you and the i and the i and the the website you're connected to has the ability to do this so the one example i gave was a, a land scenario in wi-fi these guys were asking about what about their personal local area networks well the point to remember is that anyone anywhere between you and the remote server. So the, certainly the, the location of greatest vulnerability um, is, is probably the network closest to you. But in theory, somebody who had some malicious intent anywhere in the traffic pattern, you know, upstream of the ISP, downstream of the ISP, at any of the routers along the way, anywhere in the stream, someone could could insert themselves and and perform this kind of filtering. So the the thing that SSL connections are designed to to achieve is end to end, that is endpoint to endpoint, privacy and authentication. And so the the beauty of SSL is it does protect you from man in the middle attacks anywhere, anywhere between those two endpoints. You need to make sure that you actually have connected to the remote server. We talked earlier in this podcast about that null the null character in the middle of of a deliberately malicious certificate that could spoof you so you thought you were at paypal but you were actually at a at another site but your browser and and the system would only see www.paypal.com so there was no way looking at that for you to tell that that wasn't where you were microsoft fixed that with day before yesterday's mega security update so so that's a good thing. That's been a glaring hole. But the problem is that anytime you receive a page from a remote server which is which is not over SSL, you don't know 
that it wasn't modified. That's that's the focus. Anytime you receive a page that is not over SSL, a man in the middle occurring anywhere could have changed it so that you cannot rely on it. Now, several but people... That, that almost seems trivial to point out. It, well, it is, except I mean, that... Of course, my internet service provider and every server along the way can modify that page. Okay, and, and and so 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 of course the point is that if someone did so, you would have no way of knowing right. that when you submit your username and password or your credit card information, that the button you're pressing is no is not SSL or isn't SSL to some malicious party, and so so that's really I mean that's what in in in. in at its core, that's what we made very clear last week, is that you you have to, in order to trust form, form-based form submissions, the form itself has to be delivered to you over an SSL connection. It's really not sufficient to trust that the button will be SSL because if the form itself is not secured then anyone could have changed it. And so so what we were making very clear is that those changes completely bust the security model. Basically, you know, people are using browsers. We, we've, we've adopted a, a model which sort of works, but which is really not secure. Okay. So. <laughs> it doesn't, I have to say, that doesn't terrify me. But if it terrifies you, okay. It's good to be aware. Uh, question three. Jean-Mathieu uh, Bourgeau in Tarare, France, had an interesting idea for securing public Wi-Fi hotspots. He says, hi, Stephen Leo, listener from day one, love the show, been learning so much with you guys, blah, blah, blah. Here's an idea for securing public Wi-Fi hotspots that came to mind. Not sure if it would work. On public Wi-Fi hotspots, users obviously do not need to have their computers Uh, be able to directly talk to each other just as if they were on an office LAN. Usually you're talking to the outside world, not to the guy sitting next to you. The fact is that all the computers are on the same LAN and therefore, as you just said, are prone to ARP spoofing or OS exploit attacks, etc. If the Wi-Fi hotspot's DHCP server would assign IP addresses belonging to different subnets, oh, this is interesting, Mm -hmm. to every new computer, so uh, 192.168.0.10, then .1.10, then .2.10, and so on. Would this, I don't know if that's a different subnet, though, is it? Would this prevent many of the possible via the LAN attacks? Also, the solution would be very cheap to implement by just changing the DHCP server's behavior. What do you think? Well, it was an interesting idea. Um, we're familiar with the idea that, for example, if you have a net mask, which, you know, the, 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 the net mask is used to create subnets. Right. So a, a net mask of 255.255.255.0 would say that the network number is contained in the first 3 bytes or for you know first 3 groupings and that the machine within the network is in the the fourth one, the last one. And and so then the idea would be if you were to assign each machine on the Wi-Fi system, its own subnet, so that they weren't, so that no two machines were on the same subnet, would that give you more security? And and the answer is, well, it would give you 
some little bit more security, but it would not give you any protection from like from strong hacking. The the way the way any Ethernet works, Ethernet is addressed based on MAC addresses. And the the ARP table, as we did discuss last week, because we did a little bit of review of how ARP spoofing works, the ARP table associates IPs to MAC addresses so that the packets which come into the gateway, for example, inbound to the hotspot, the, the ARP table in the gateway looks at the packet based on its IP addressing and sees which MAC address owns that IP on the LAN, and then the packet is routed based on the MAC address. So the problem is that subnetting is sort of a it's a it's a logical addressing layer on top of the the physical addressing layer, which is MAC based. But if you were doing any for example, promiscuous sniffing, where you had a Wi-Fi adapter and they're readily purchasable, which allows you to sniff all the packets on the on on the hotspot, it would see all the packets in all the subnets that were using that Wi-Fi. Uh, so it does not provide you any useful security. Ah, damn! Ah. <laughs> Seems like such a good idea. It's a neat. It's a neat idea. Jason Lermuth in Sydney, Australia, writes, he's got some thoughts about the broken, I don't want to call it the broken browser model because I think that's confusing. It's uh, the broken browser paradigm. Let's use that because browser okay. model means something else to programmers. Stephen Leo, I listened with great interest to your discussions on the state of play with secure browser sessions and the session hijack Trojan out there stealing people's money. Uh, Steve, you mentioned in one of your listener feedbacks that the authentication needs to be moved closer to the transaction. While I agree this would fix the problem for now, I expect it would only be a matter of time before attackers moved closer to the transaction as well. Discrete applications were suggested as a way to offer a secure connection-based solution. Steve correctly pointed out that we have enough stuff installed in our computers already. The browser is very convenient. So maybe, I think this is actually a good idea, the browser could run an application based on Java or some similar technology to provide the best of both worlds. I've seen some SSL VPN providers I think go to uh, my PC does this and go to meeting. Download a Java app to create a tunnel to the network. That's exactly how uh, Citrix works. It. I believe Google uses this type of technology in its Docs product, which offers very near real time document collaboration. Um, there must be. I don't know if Google's doing that with uh, Wave. I don't think so. There must be some two way traffic there beyond just HTTP. Um, they're using. Uh, uh, actually, they're using uh, the Jabber protocol. But anyway, what about Jungle Disk? It encrypts before sending data to the cloud through an SSL tunnel. How does that avoid being vulnerable to attacks, or does it? Could a site offer a local application to the user that would handle all the security, authentication, and encryption through its own persistent connection without requiring a local install? Love the show. Happy to hear my name on the show if you feel like reading us. Thanks, Jason. Well, that is, I think, as you say, Leo, it's, it's a fundamentally good idea. Um, of course, you have to trust Java, but barring an exploit in Java. Right. Now, it is also essentially what we've been talking about with some level of disparagement uh, about all this ActiveX stuff. You know, ActiveX is an application which is transparently run 
by the browser. Microsoft, recognizing the fundamental security problem with that, has in recent versions of IE, and, and, and Firefox does too, warning users that this page wants to execute a, an ActiveX control. You know, do you want to proceed? So, so I, I do think that, that the notion of using the browser to encapsulate an application which is provided to the user in a transparent way, which exists in sort of transient form on their machine, which they don't have to separately download and install and, and manage, which won't clutter up their add remove programs list with, you know, an infinite number of individual applications for everyone you want to have a secure transaction with. Um, I, I think that makes a lot of sense. And if the, if the remote system then refused not to, if, if it refused to operate without its own dialogue with its own application, then it would in fact be able to create the kind of containment that we're looking for, which is fundamentally more safe and secure than the than the the transaction-based sort of fundamentally dangerous model that that we've so far been using with our browsers. Mm-hmm. So, yep, I think it's a good idea. Right. Uh, question five: Dale Willer in Kansas City asks about our spoofing on a home network. What episode two seventeen? The last episode, the broken browser model. If it wasn't clear that the uh, ARP spoofing attack, if the ARP spoofing attack and the scenario presented in that episode is a threat on a homeland behind a router, my first impression was it's only a threat at public hotspots such as airports, Starbucks, etc. Later on, I wasn't so sure. Please clarify. Also, one way to protect against this at a public hotspot, always use your VPN if you have one, right? Yeah, I, I put this in here because I wanted to make sure as I was going through these that I, I didn't forget to mention that that because we already answered the, the first part exactly yeah, yeah. I, I i wanted to make sure i didn't forget to mention because many people asked this they were they were seeing the example i gave last week in a, in, a, in a public uh setting and wondered about what's happening in a home setting so so it i mean arp spoofing is much less likely in a lan it's somewhat more possible in a wireless environment but it is definitely the case that if you if you're using a VPN or you somehow have a persistent SSL connection, which is what a VPN would provide, or which is what a a custom app running in the browser would create, then then you really have nothing to worry about because the, uh, good VPN and or SSL technology provides authentication of the endpoint and privacy so that no one in the middle has any opportunity to do anything bad to you. Yeah. So the worst that ARP spoofing could do would be to, to keep you from getting a connection, but it would not be able to allow someone to to intercept what you're doing. Perfect. John Clayton in Billings, Montana reports that uh, Astaro has upgraded their free home use licenses. We, we love Astaro. We talk about them all the time. Um, Hi, Steve and Leo. Know that Astaro is one of your longest and most loyal advertisers on the show and thought your listeners might be interested in this news. For the longest time, I had used Astaro on an old PC as my home firewall using their free home user license. Uh, Unfortunately, with so many connected devices in the house, I outgrew the 10 IP limit of the license. Wow. (laughs) 
<laughs> He's got a lot of computers and had to switch. I've never been nearly as satisfied with any other firewall solution as I was with Astaro. Fast forward yesterday uh, to yesterday when Astaro announced it was raising the limit for the non-commercial home user license to 50 IP addresses. I guess this guy's not alone. <laughs> this is more than enough to protect my home network and is likely sufficient even for a larger family with even more devices. This is truly generous of Astaro. The restricted license was partly to deter businesses from using it for free, and most of the community was only expecting 20 or 25. Really, it's true. You know, um, it's really honor system now because, you know, my business is less than 50 IP addresses, even with all the computers we have. I'm happy to say I'm back on Astaro. There's simply nothing else that could touch it as far as power, features, and ease of use. And now it's even more accessible for your listeners to run in their own homes. Always love the show. Keep up the good work. Well, that's nice. Thank you, Astaro, for doing that. You know, Leo, I think I'm going to have to poke around at it. I haven't yet. I just I've got so much going on and and all that. But um, I've got just a regular, regular cheesy consumer home router over on my cable connection, which I don't normally use for things. But uh, I'm I'm think I'm going to take a look at it. A couple, of, you know, the easiest way to do it is the VMware has an appliance or a Staro, you know, pre-installed appliance you just put on your system because uh, it uses Linux. Um, but right. any, you could put it on any beige box. It's easy enough to do. It's not a not a difficult thing to do. Yeah, I've got a, a cute little um, uh, Socris is the name of the company. They make beautiful little embedded um, uh, PC appliances huh. that, that are like multiple uh, multiple NICs, and they run Unix and FreeBSD and so forth. So I think I I think I set it up with FreeBSD, which, as we know, <laughs> is is my my Unix of choice, but right. you know, Open via uh, Open BSD and NetBSD and all the other ones work as well. Right. So right, that's true. Any Unix, any Unix. Yep. Work, yeah. Uh, finally, our last question from Alan Goldstein in Franklin, Massachusetts, commenting once again on the broken browsers. Steve, I'm a Spinrite owner and a fan. It has saved me many times, including helping me get more than an extra year out of my Pentium Four desktop. Mm. Oh wow. That's uh, that's a great return on my $90 investment. Uh, great episode last week. It made me think that both Internet Explorer and Firefox should do more to clearly indicate if the connection is secure with HTTPS. In the short term, my approach is to otherwise change all my more critical bookmarks to include HTTPS for those pages that support it, just so I won't forget and uh, you know I'll get a secure connection even without thinking about it. Perhaps we should suggest that someone in the know write a Firefox add-on that would highlight both the address bar and the status bar in green whenever you're securely connected. It's too easy to neglect looking for the HTTPS on every page. Top and bottom green bars would stand out and clearly show when you're not on a secure page, when there's no green bar. Unfortunately, the padlock indicator just doesn't stand out sufficiently. Keep up the great work and the great podcasts, Alan. Well, it's interesting. This has been... An issue that the browser um, vendors have been aware of for a while, um, i.e. has a configurable setting in their security settings, uh, which says um, submit non-encrypted form data. And you can disable that, oh. you, can, you can enable that, or you can tell it to prompt you. So, so the idea is that you could um, you could set it to prompt, and so you would just be advised if you clicked a button that was not secure that you were about to submit non-secure form data. Yeah, I've seen that uh, that that little box. 
Right. Now, Firefox has a bunch of things under their sort of extra security settings. And they've got it's, – it's five checkboxes. They've got one that says, show a warning dialogue when. One, I am about to view an encrypted page. I'm not sure why you'd want that. But, you know, these are all turned off by default, by the way. So when I'm about to view an encrypted page or, number two, I'm about to view a page that uses low-grade encryption, okay? Number three, I leave an encrypted page for one that isn't encrypted. Now, that's that's useful because that would be that would be an encrypted page, for example, that that had a maybe a button a, a form submission that was going to take that was not going to be secure except that you know I don't know how, the the problem is that would be popping up all the time because anytime you went to a non encrypted page you get you know a warning and so that that's hard to have that one turned on number 4 is i submit information that's not encrypted so that's certainly a a, a useful one um or 5 i'm about to view an encrypted page that contains some unencrypted information. Now that one's annoying because that's you get that all the time uh, from like an encrypted page which ha- is has other components on it. IE calls that mixed security, where um, where an encrypted page will have you know maybe just images or thumbnails or other things which are non-encrypted. Well, you know, I I guess. That can be a problem, but I don't really see how that's a huge security problem. So of those five on Firefox, really the one of I submit, I submit information that's not encrypted, I would say that's useful to turn on because it would just give you a warning if you're, if you're, you know, you're using a form and you're about to, to and this, this, this form data would not, would be going over non-encrypted connection. So it's important to know, though, that none of those prevent exploitation from the, the problem that an unencrypted page could be modified because someone in the middle could change the unencrypted page to send the form information securely to them rather than to where you think it's going. So, so you have to have a, a, a padlock. You have to have an encrypted page. And the form information has to be set in an encrypted form. Correct. Okay. Cor- correct. The two and, need both. Right. And so, so Leo, you know, you were unimpressed by this that, because probably, you know, I, I tried to give it to you without going through everything that we discussed last week. The, the, the problem is that, that if you were completely vigilant, if you were never distracted, you were never in a hurry, you, you absolutely never logged on anywhere without making sure – that the logon page was secure, then I agree, non-issue. But no one here no, no. can say that that's yeah. the way they use their computer. Um, so um, I, I think I'm less. Uh, I don't think there's a lot of evidence that people are doing this, and it's not a trivial thing to do. This ARP spoofing, it's possible. Correct. It's a theoretical possibility. But uh, somebody would have to really, I mean, they first of all, they'd have to compromise a server somewhere. Uh, well, assuming that no. they're not compromised your LAN. Um, all they would have to do, and, and this was the example I gave, and it's what Moxie did, is simply go to any open Wi-Fi hotspot. Right. 
Well, and that's I mean that's all it takes. Yeah. I mean, I mean it, there are plenty of other dangers in an open Wi-Fi Wi-Fi hotspot, right? Except I mean, that you're assuming that your logins are secure. You're assuming right. that that you know when you're well, when you're providing foolish. A, yes, <laughs> that's just foolish. When when you're providing a credit card information, right? And you know, like you're assuming that it's going to be secure, right? And so 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 his point was: Are there a that, lot of sites that uh, are are not secure in this regard? It turns out that many financial sites are not. I used a bad example, and many of our listeners pointed out that PayPal, which I just used because you know it's so it's we common. Them. Yes, okay. Because <laughs> <laughs> there's so many other dumb things they do. Well, they do not do this dumb thing. They the form you use for logging into PayPal is secure. So a number of a bunch of our listeners wrote in and said, "Well, Steve." PayPal was a bad example, but here's a good one. And so they, there's like lots of other examples of financial institutions where you log on on an insecure form. Well, and that should be fixed. I mean, yes. that's the place to go to fix that. Those people are morons if they have – If I mean, what? that's nuts. Now, let me ask you a couple of questions. I wasn't here. I apologize. But I'm, I'm just looking at my Macintosh here, for instance. This is Safari. This is the box. It says, ask before sending a non-secure form – from a secure website. So that box should be checked. Correct. Now, yes. as long as I go, say, let's see, to my Amazon account here, and I'm looking at my Amazon account, and I see that it's an HTTPS, uh, I'm safe, right? Because not only am I in an HTTPS, but this form, even if it's poorly coded, I'm going to get a warning if it says, hey, that's a non-secure form. Correct. The The key is... I mean, we're assuming that Amazon knows how to get their. You, we're assuming that Amazon knows how to protect you, except that that many companies are still not protecting the form where they ask for your data, and and that needs to get fixed. Right, but and I would get that warning on that page. Right, that's why I check that box in Safari and in the other browsers to say, "Warn me if I'm sending a non-secure form from a secure website." Well, and and remember, we're not so much talking about catching Leo as catching my mom. Yeah, yeah. But and, by default, Firefox has that box checked. So um, the the uh, the real uh, issue is would be an insecure page with a with a like a bank page that's not a secure page. Right. And what and the point I made last week, which Moxie made in his presentation, which I didn't say this week, is that most users don't put in https colon slash slash www exactly so 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 really the 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 point was that we're relying on our browsers to that is to say on the remote server to switch us into and out of ssl as necessary we 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 often start on you know non-logged in on regular pages when we go to the login page we're assuming that the that the remote site is going to take us to a secure page where we're going to do the things that need to be secure and then it's going to take us back out of it because historically so, uh, uh, bringing up ssl connections which required public key crypto was an expensive right. you know computationally expensive thing to do so and it's one thing for individual users to do it but it all of those users concentrate on a single server, the server can quickly be brought down by by just need, needing to negotiate SSL connections. So, so the idea was that that we're relying on 
the remote server to, to put our browser into and out of secure mode. But if that's the case and somebody did insert themselves into our traffic stream, they could always filter out the S's on the HTTPs and then get the data back from us and and create secure connections themselves to the remote server, but make, but keep the link that we have apparently to the remote server not secure. And it is it's been done as a proof of concept. It's it's as easy so as somebody. I, 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 let me let me ask you this uh, to clarify this. I'm sorry, you're going back through this. Sure, no, no, it's okay. You're saying that they could spoof the padlock. Yes, in fact. So if my, I see a padlock on a page and it says HTTPS. If there's a man-in-the-middle attack, that could be a lie. Well, um, it was the case that and until Tuesday that you could spoof the you could you could spoof a secure connection, so you're actually connected to somewhere else with all the browser security up. One of the things that Moxie that did was that was because kind of, of the, because of the white space issue. Cor- correct. Yeah. One of the things that Moxie did. That That's was why, kind of by flip- the way, Brian Krebs said, "Don't use Windows to bank." Yes, <laughs> because exactly. that's a Windows flaw. Exactly. Yeah. He suggests using a live CD of Linux to bank or at the very bottom, he says, if you're a Mac user, you're okay too. So one of the things that Moxie did that was kind of clever was that he changed the fave icon on the fly. Oh, that's clever. To a padlock. Yeah. And so you sort of saw the padlock. And again, no hardcore security guy is going to get caught out by this. But my mother... We wouldn't wouldn't know the difference. She sees a padlock up there by her URL and goes, "Oh, that that means yeah. secure." It's right. like, okay, but in this case, it doesn't. So, so what, what what I want to tell my listeners on the radio show, who are basically your mom, is, uh, well, I just went through all my financial institutions one by one through the bookmarks. They all show up as HTTPS. Great. So that's that's the first thing to do is make sure that they show up as HTTPS, and you see the padlock not in the browser icon but in the corner of the browser window and it should be locked and then turn on this setting that says warn me if i am sending an insecure form on a secure site yep that's on by default in most browsers but if it's not check make sure and then when you get that pop-up understand what's happening here that there's a risk now that somebody could be capturing that data because it's an insecure form yeah i would say the the simplest thing is Make sure of the security of the form you're filling out. That is, if if the form you're filling out, if where you're being asked for username and password, that if that is secure, if that's got the the proper padlocky ah. icons, then you're okay. Then, then really everything is okay. So, but it means you can't have an insecure form on a secure page, though, right? You can, except that if the form is secure, then you got it. From you, you got it from a remote website. That is, it wasn't edited. The form wasn't ah, changed. Okay, and that's and the key. so okay. exactly. Okay. You don't. It's the form wasn't changed. If they don't want to, if they don't care about the, what you submit being secure, it's like okay. Well, I'm not sure that you have to care about it. Right. But the but but the danger is if the form is not secure. That if the form that you received is not secure, it could be correct. It could have been changed. Got it. To, to remove the security of your submission. And, 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 the, and again, someone hypervigilant would, would probably 
catch that hopefully but so many of us you know i mean logging into the sites we log into every day it gets to be kind of routine so it's easy just to miss it one time well it would be prudent to do what i just did which is go through all my financial the bookmarks that i use to go to my financial sites and make sure that that landing page in each and every case is an https with a with a closed padlock not as a favicon yes and maybe do that once in a while (laughs) <laughs> yes, and in fact, one, and, and, and that was one of the, the the tips that one of our listeners in this episode made. He said, "Hey, you know, I've got all my shortcuts. I just went through them, and I just made sure I I put S's on all of the URLs, and then you know check to make sure you can still use it, right. because some sites will allow you to get to them either secure or not." Yeah, these bookmarks I'm uh, are just the default bookmarks from the site. I don't know if they have the S in there or not, but anyway, you, they, that's probably a prudent thing to do. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. All right. Well, that's good advice. I'm looking here. Yeah, yeah. These all have S's. Good. So uh, that's a good thing. That's a good thing. Yeah. So, you see, I, I, wouldn't, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't say this should scare you away from using your browser. I thought it was very I – was, I was actually shocked that Brian Krebs went so far as to say don't use Windows to bank. That was a little bit of a shock to me. <laughs> I mean, whew. That, but you know, I guess in a way you could you could justify that. Well, I mean, and and was was he speaking only of this issue that is of he, the null? He used as an example a couple of things we've talked about on the show before. The guy who uh, had the Trojan on there that he authenticated, but only authenticated once, and of course, then all the other transactions right. were sniffed. Uh, right. He also used click fraud as an example and talked about the very widespread prevalence of click fraud, which is another kind of man in the middle like attack. Yep. Um, that is possible. So uh, I don't think he mentioned ARP spoofing, but it's clear he gave enough examples of what, what could go wrong. Well, a man-in-the-middle attack, I mean, you know, ARP, ARP spoofing is just one means for right. achieving a man-in-the-middle man attack. So, right. uh, and, of course, click fraud is prevented by secure things that you click on. So as long as the pages are secure, I mean, really, Leo, what we ought to do is just drop HTTP. That is the non-secure. We right. ought to just say, okay, it's secure. time yeah. for us to just switch over to SSL. Because who, you know, when do you not want, right. you know, I mean, when, 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 when is having a secure connection a problem? Right. Well, it's never a problem unless unless the server can't handle the SSL negotiations. But several things that have happened since it was invented, since SSL1 happened, namely the notion of, persistent connections so you so the browser maintains a connection to the server means you're not constantly renegotiating ssl connections that and remember when we talked about the ssl protocol the notion of caching your previously negotiated um data also prevented you as long as both ends agreed to use the recently used data then you avoided all the overhead of doing it again. So many things have happened to lessen this burden. I it would be really interesting to know from someone you know big like Adobe or Yahoo or Hotmail or or Google. Google got with Gmail where you've got the option of always using enforcing SSL. That's what we want from everyone. We just want our browsers to say, "Hey, keep me secure unless you you know unless unless you absolutely can't or better yet." I only want SSL connections, period. I like that. I would like to, I think we can campaign for that. All SSL all the time. It's a very simple a, thing to do. Everybody's got enough horsepower now to do this. Yep. That's not the issue. 
Uh, let's just all SSL all the time. The only people who wouldn't want to do that are people who don't want to pay for the certificate. And uh, look, if you come into my blog and it's not SSL, so what? But, but, right? But anytime, good... anytime there's a login, SSL all the time. Let's make that our campaign. Yep. Yeah. And then you could bank with Windows again. <laughs> <laughs> I think Microsoft should make that their campaign. Seems like they have a dog in this hunt. Boy, I, yeah. I was just, I was like, wow. That's a, he says, use a live Linux CD. See, now there's something that nobody's going to do. No, exactly. Mom's not going to do that. She's not going to shut down her machine and reboot right. with a CD. She'd go, what? Right. What, right. what do you want me to do? And what we, and we, even what we described as too hard, that's why ultimately it comes down to the, the websites themselves that have to do it right. Yep, I think someday we'll look back on these quaint days <laughs> where where ASCII text move across moved across the internet unencrypted. in re, unencrypted in little individual characters that anybody could could you know sniff and capture. It's like, what were we thinking? Yeah, how did we even survive those? As somebody pointed we, out in the chat room. Let's get DNSSEC working first. <laughs> even that's not out there universally, and we know that needs to be done. Yep. Incredible, incredible. Steve, as always, a pleasure. Thank you so much. You can find the notes to this show and transcriptions and 16 kilobit versions at Steve's website, grc.com. That's, of course, the home of Spinrite, the world's finest hard drive maintenance and recovery utility, a must-have at grc.com. If you've got a question for future feedback episodes, grc.com slash feedback. And, of course, all those free programs like Shields Up and Wismo, it's all there. Gibson Research Corporation, that's the name, GRC. Dot com. You can watch us do this show live every Wednesday. We do it at 2 p.m. Eastern. That's 11 a.m. Pacific at live.twit.tv, 1800 UTC for those of you living outside the U.S. And, you know, Steve, I was in Dubai and I met so many people who listen to this show and all the Twitch shows. But this show is no very kidding. popular How in the cool. Middle East. Yeah, A lot of listeners from Bahrain and Kuwait, Lebanon, Saudi Arabia. I mean, just all over the Middle East who came to Dubai. Uh, a lot of them just to say hi. I listen, <laughs> so that's really nice. That's neat. Yeah, we got some great fans out there. You can of course subscribe to the podcast if you're not already. You don't want to miss an episode, and, and really, you should keep an archive. Steve uh, does keep an archive of all the shows. We also have one at twit.tv, but you should have your own because it's frequently we will go. Oh, well, you should listen to our ARP spoofing episode. You know, back a hundred episodes. Uh, so just subscribe at iTunes uh, or your favorite podcatcher to Security Now, and then you'll get every episode automatically. Oh, one more thing. Steve, uh, you won the Podcast Awards Best Tech Podcast, I think, last year. Yeah. And uh, the Podcast Awards have come around again. Nominations are being uh, accepted through the 19th. So I, a lot of the other hosts want to win, too. So I've decided not to take sides, but just to tell you, if you listen to this show and you love this show, go to the Podcast Awards page, podcastawards.com. And nominate it. There are a number of categories. Technology, obviously. People's choice. I don't think comedy. But, you know, whatever. whatever. <laughs> I hope not comedy. Put the kids whiz in comedy. But, there's, <laughs> but, but, but pick, a, pick a top, pick a, a, a section and nominate uh, your favorite Twitch shows. We would appreciate it. We just love to get on that, you know, have, have all the nominations filled with Twit programs. Yeah, we want, we want Twit. We want Leo's podcast. Uh, security now would, would work for me. Yeah. I'm very happy that you won last time. So uh, that's all you have to do. You got to the 19th, and then after the 19th, after all the nominations are in, it'll be a little easier than you go and you vote for uh, your favorite. Thank you, Steve. Always a pleasure, Leo. And next week we've got John, John Graham Cumming is going to join us. 
Yeah, he did a great presentation on, well, I, I know this is where you and I go back and forth. Uh, I would title this, the, the next week's show, JavaScript, Just Say No. <laughs> Good luck on that one. I Steve. know, I know. Good my is going to explain exactly why. If you were scared last week, wait till next week. <laughs> All right, Steve. We'll see you then. That'll be a lot of fun. Yes, it will. Security now.